Welcome to Focus, an audio series from Colab, the Association of Return Development Workers and Volunteers. I'm your host, Mark Malone. In the series, we take a very look at issues and themes around global inequality and talk to people involved in different ways in challenging inequality and injustices wherever they are. In today's show, we're chatting about volunteering overseas in orphanages with members of Colab's Volunteering and Orphanages Working Group. We've all seen the pictures of destitute children living in poverty as represented by NGOs and charities. And we're actually going to look at that particular issue in another show. But many people still imagine that going to volunteer at an orphanage is a good thing. So what's the problem with people going overseas to volunteer in orphanages? I suppose the whole um, ethos of volunteering is that you should never replace somebody who should be doing a paid job, if you know what I mean. So, if you're volunteering in an orphanage, uh, what are you doing there? Are you doing work that should be done by paid people? And then when you leave, what happens when you're not there to do the, the work anymore? That's Jerry O'Donoghue from Maintain Hope. It's an entirely voluntary organisation that works with communities in Kenya, particularly with vulnerable and at-risk children. Maintain Hope also supports children who've already left institutions such as orphanages, again helping them to reintegrate into communities. The difficulty is that all of the research is, you know, it absolutely proves that institutionalisation is harmful to children. And even if it's well intended, and even if it is, it is uh, well intentioned, volunteering in orphanages simply perpetuates a system that isn't actually working. If it were a neutral effect on children, it would still be unfortunate. But the fact is that residential care long term has harmful effects on children and they are well documented and the evidence is incontrovertible. So well intentioned as it is, volunteering in orphanages, unless it's to build capacity to work towards deinstitutionalisation, actually volunteering is doing a lot more harm than good. The harmful effects of institutionalisation are well documented. Um, and we have found that when volunteers go overseas to work in orphanages, they are perpetuating a serious problem. That's Gemma Kelly from Tear Fund Ireland, a relief and development organisation that's involved in humanitarian assistance. Specifically, they work in Cambodia and Nepal around shutting down orphanages and reintegrating children back into the community. There has been recent changes, I suppose, in legislation in different countries to say now that actually the recruiting of children to be put into orphanages is a form of trafficking, um, so therefore volunteering is perpetuating that. So we, unfortunately, with really good intentions, wanting to go overseas, wanting to volunteer, wanting to give our time, is creating a demand for orphanages, and it's creating a demand for children, therefore, to be put into them. Um, so, unfortunately, what we have seen is that very poor parents who are living in very marginalised, um, vulnerable situations in Africa, in Southeast Asia, um, orphanage recruiters or traffickers are coming to their villages. They are saying, look, we can give your child um, an education, we can give them food, we can give them a future. Parents feel like this is a better option because they can't afford to look after them themselves. Um, but the reality is those children will be taken, they'll be put into orphanages where there is very few child protection procedures, policies, um, and they will then accept volunteers from overseas who will come. Um, they will stay for a very short amount of time, usually, um, and that will create huge issues for those children in various different ways. Um, these children already have serious attachment disorders, and volunteering when you come in for maybe two weeks or three weeks at a time really reinforces those attachment disorders as well. Um, 
and also volunteers, as we have seen from the research that we've been doing, they're not skilled, mm. they're not professional, they don't have what they need to actually work with children who have gone through a very traumatic process of being taken away from their parents. Um, so unfortunately, they are doing more harm than good. If, if you think statistically, uh, worldwide, 80% of children who are placed in orphanages have at least one living parent, and that's pretty uniform throughout all of the developing countries. Yeah. So it's difficult to blame parents who in good faith um, give over, if you like, their children to what they effectively see as boarding school, because they feel, okay, my child is being fed, yeah. is getting an education and opportunities that they wouldn't be getting if they were to stay at home. But the point about it is that they're not going to boarding school, they're going to an institution where even though many, uh, I suspect millions at this stage, of money is being poured into these institutions, it is in the interests of the people who run them to, pre pre to present the poorest facade possible because it attracts even more sympathy. And it's not unusual to have um, a programme in a hotel and a resort, for example, where part of the activity programme for the guests is to go and visit an orphanage where they're presented with destitute children, their heartstrings are, are plucked, obviously, and they would part with their last shilling in those circumstances because they're very aware of the contrast of their living in a resort and here on their doorstep with these, these children. But unfortunately, there are cartels, there are gangs, and there are family enterprises which are pushing orphanages as legitimate, and in fact, they're not. Another startling statistics, and I mean, nobody wants to be talking about war stories or trying to shock people, but a person who is a product who has survived, uh, and that is the word I think, survived a residential institution in a developing country is 500 times more likely to commit suicide than, than any other person. And that is startling, but it's true. While listening to the conversation around institutionalisation, it's hard not to think about the practice of direct provision in Ireland where people are seeking asylum or forced into institutional living as families and as individuals. The movement of Asylum Seekers Ireland and many others before them have long been pointing out the damaging emotional, psychological and social impacts of people forced to live and survive within the direct provision system. So we've stopped using orphanages in Ireland, yet thousands are still experiencing the cruel reality of institutional living. So how do we get to the point where orphanages aren't used in Ireland, yet volunteering sending agencies and organisations are supporting orphanages? What are the kind of historical and ongoing processes that have got us to this point? There are two streams to it, if you like. One is where you have organisations who, in good faith, honestly believed that the best way to deal with destitute children was to put them in comfortable residential homes. And in order to resource that, then, they depended on volunteers, first of all, for their expertise or for literally for boots on the ground. And secondly, for a lot of uh, sending agencies, volunteering is an income stream so that somebody will very happily, when they tell their local community, I'm going to volunteer in Kenya, people will rally around with table quizzes and fundraisers, give them whatever their placement fee is, a portion of that will cover their placement there, but the remainder of it is actually an income stream for the sending agency. So that is a problem. As well as that, there are numerous businesses out there, you know, gap years, for example, in, 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 in traditional England, you know, even transition students here in Ireland who are part of their, their wonderful year and transition year is to visit Zambia or to visit Uganda or to visit Kenya and spend two weeks with... And from their point of view, you know, it's a life-changing experience, but what's not examined is what effect or what benefit is that having on the, the actual children whom they're, whom they're visiting. 
and a deconstruction exercise where you go through the benefits to all of the people. If you take a hierarchy of benefits of everybody involved in volunteering in an orphanage, the ones at the very bottom of that um, hierarchy are the children. They're the ones who benefit least from it. And I think that's why education for sending agencies, whether it's for a business point of view or an altruistic point of view, is very, very necessary. What's really important to note is that when, even if you have an orphanage or a residential care centre that is very well run, who, you know, where there are very good intentions of the people that are there, um, the way an orphanage is set up is set up so it is not like a family environment. Everything is very structured. You wake up at the same time every morning. You eat at the same time. You play at the same time. If you are getting education, you do that at the same time. So children don't have any choices. So they, don't, they can't decide, well, I want to go out to play now and maybe I'll negotiate to do my homework later. Everything is laid out for them. Um, and what we have seen then is that when they age out of the orphanage and they go into real life situations and back into the community, it's really difficult for them to make choices. So even a very simple choice of, would you like tea or coffee? They can't answer that question because everything has been structured for them. Um, so that's an example of an orphanage where, as I said, you know, it's not your worst case scenario. Um, unfortunately, what we have seen and what our partners on the ground will tell us is that there are orphanages um, where there are little to no um, child protection policies. There's an open door policy for volunteers. Um, they might have one staff member to 20, 30 children. Um, children are left completely unsupervised. They are open to neglect, violence, all types of abuse, both by staff, by orphanage directors, and also by, unfortunately, volunteers, tourists, um, foreigners who are specifically coming in to target orphanages because they know that they will have access to children there, to very vulnerable children. Um, so we, as I said, are working with partners in Nepal, it's here from Ireland, and there is an orphanage there um, that had 300 children. It's just been shut down by the government and our partners are helping to reintegrate those children. And the levels of abuse that we have heard so far um, include rape of children, hard labour, um, and also death threats. So that's the extreme end of the scale. Um, so yeah, there, there are obviously, um, there's extremes, that is one of the worst. Um, and I think what's also really important to remember though, because that is an extreme example, is that even in those orphanages that are well run, mm -hmm. the detrimental effects are still there. Um, there's still massive, mm -hmm. you know, irreversible psychological and social damage that are done to the children. Given that there's clear evidence of the damage done to kids via institutionalisation, and this very, very often goes alongside specific abuses and neglect within the residential settings, what role is there for regulations around orphanages? And what position should the Irish government, and Irish aid in particular, be adopting to best reflect what we know to be the impacts on kids? How can we ensure the Irish state is supporting moves for proper family and community-based supports for children? You know, in any organisation, any charitable organisation, uh, probably two of the most neglected spheres are um, governance and self-examination. You know, because you're struggling to continue doing what you're doing and the opportunity to examine your own practice 
or the overarching philosophy of organisation. You know, it's just doesn't figure very highly in people's thinking. But I think that uh, when presented with the evidence, you know, and that is, it is a question of, of a process of education, because it's important that to remember that, that the majority of volunteer sending agencies are, you know, they're, they're doing it for the best of reasons. And it appears to work. At least the children are not on the street. At least the children. But that is to ignore the alternatives. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you examine the alternatives, they are actually there. Because people assume incorrectly, and rather, I think a very Eurocentric view is that people think, oh, because life is cheap, people don't have the same regard for their children. It is heartbreaking for a Kenyan family to give up a child to an orphanage. It is, it is heartbreaking from an emotional point of view, from their family is sundered, from a social point of view, it is seen as, as there's this huge stigma attached to it. So given an alternative, the majority of parents would wish to hang on to their children. And if we could succeed in persuading volunteer sending agencies to yes, send your volunteers, but send them to empower local communities, to embolden local communities, to actually, you know, take this on, look after their own and support them in doing that. That is a really viable alternative. It will be a, a, a perfect raise on death for the actual volunteer sending agency, but it will be doing an enormous amount of good because the aim of any volunteer sending agency really should be, should be to put itself out of business. And that the way to do that is to put in care back into the community, placing children back with their families or with, with in foster care, and really supporting the family and the community, which would involve all of the agencies, not least the schools, supporting all of those, instead of pouring money into a residential institution, and very little of it is actually doing good for, for the children. In our programmes we very much support the community development aspect of things so and that kind of has two strands to it which is preventing children Mm -hmm. from being placed in care in the first place so we have found and the research will tell you that poverty is the main reason that children are placed in care so we do a lot of work on the ground in order to help people to lift themselves out of poverty we do livelihood training um, and then our partners I suppose at the other end of it when children are being deinstitutionalized and are reintegrated back into communities, um, that's also really, really important. Um, so that's you know where we see, I think particularly as Kolov, um, you know where people can get involved because they can capacity build. You know, as Jerry had said, they can use their skills. You know, at either ends of that spectrum to either work with communities beforehand or to help with the mm-hmm. reintegration from a capacity building point of view, provided they are skilled, that they have the professional knowledge and know-how in how to do that, um, and where they wouldn't have direct contact with children, but they can capacity build staff that are actually doing the reintegration process. Um, And I think one of the things that's really important when we talk about volunteering, sending agencies and deinstitutionalization is to remember that it's it's complicated, Mm. it's a process, and it's a really long journey for volunteering sending agencies as well to kind of to think about and get their heads around. And what's really important is that we, as Kolov or Tier from Ireland or Maintain Hope, is that we are there to bring people along that journey, mm-hmm. to talk them through it, to give them the statistics, to give them the research, but to also give them the space where they can kind of think about it themselves and ask questions and go, okay, mm-hmm. so 
what can my volunteer sending agency do to help? You know, how can we change what we do so we are making a difference and not perpetuating a problem? Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important and it can't be glossed over or, you know, we can't rush that process. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think we need to remember, or, you know, a really good question is, well, would we do this in Ireland? So would we send untrained volunteers, not guard checked or cleared, you know, into a setting where there's vulnerable children? And I think if you don't do it in Ireland, then you shouldn't do it in another country. Um, and I think that's a really good marker for people as well. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a role for volunteering sending agencies in this. Just trying to figure out what that is and where they fit. Yeah. Has the Irish government itself taken a stance per se on, on deinstitutionalisation? And what's the role of civil society, I guess, in, in, in pushing it in that direction? Yeah, so to the best of our knowledge, um, Ireland, the government has not, you know, we don't have a stance per se. Um, obviously, you know, Irish Aid, which is a development wing of the Irish government, are supporters of the, the COLA of code, um, and this is going to be part of that code. So they're obviously supporting that, um, but not so far. So one of the things that we will be hoping to do as COLA and as individual organisations will be bringing this to the attention of the Irish government. Um, and yeah, I suppose bringing their attention to it. There has been lots of things that have been done in other countries. Um, so the Australian government is probably um, ahead of the posse. It's, it's way out ahead of everybody else. Um, so it has actually just recently brought in um, modern slavery legislation into Australia. And within that, there is an actual um, article on orphanage trafficking. Um, so they again have pinpointed orphanages as a destination point trafficking and mm. um, so that's really really important and really good and um, they have also basically said to all of their citizens that they do not want anybody volunteering in orphanages when they go overseas on volunteer trips and they have a whole smart volunteering website and platform and they have guidelines on what smart volunteering is what is ethical volunteering um, and they have taken a very strong stance on that and a very hard line mm. Um, to basically say that they do not want their citizens perpetuating this issue, while obviously, you know, taking into account the great volunteering that, you know, Australians have done and people do all around the world. Um, so we would be looking at pushing the Irish government towards doing something very similar in the near future. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ironies, as well as really, there is no shortage of regulation on the ground. If countries, in, if governments in developing countries, enforce their own codes. Of, be, of behaviour. For example, in Kenya, where nobody's supposed to be in an orphanage for, or in a residential institution for more than three months, while a more long-term solution is being found. Now, historically, we've been dealing with children who spent their entire childhood in, in residential institutions with no regulation, with no examination. Technically, they're supposed to be placed there by the court every year. So I think that Funding agencies, not least the Irish, Irish Aid, for example, need to inform themselves about how is this aid being delivered on the ground and what is, what is the effect? Is it supporting unsustainable volunteering? Is it support, supporting unsustainable uh, uh, systems? And I think other... And again, I really want to emphasise that nobody sets out to do harm. But if you're in charge of 60 transition year students 
and you want them to have the most wonderful time of their lives, you send them to maybe uh, an orphanage in Zambia or Uganda or Kenya. But who is it about? Is it about the volunteers or is it about the children that you're trying to help? And if you put the children at the centre of every decision you make and if volunteer sending agencies and if governments put the children at the centre of the decisions they make, then that would, that would wipe it away ov overnight. But as Emma says, you know, it's not a question of condemning or vilifying, it's a question of, of asking people to examine their practice. And I mean, from my own point of view, that is the journey I had to take, you know, from looking at what we were doing and realising this isn't, this isn't sustainable. And I think it's only reasonable to expect other people to be given the chance to do that also. What was that journey, if you don't mind me asking? The journey was rather naively, I suppose, given that we were asked to help out in a residential institution, particularly with medical care, with education and uh, with the provision of, of, of feeding programmes. We were very happy to do that and people were very enthusiastic about fundraising. We also uh, volunteered to build infrastructure in terms of, of proper facilities, you know, this is uh, in Kenya, yeah, in terms of, of uh, you know, a walk-in clinic, toilets, you know, shower facilities, you know, even, even dormitories. But to our surprise, after, this, after going back there the second year, we discovered that we were dealing with the same children. There was, there was practically no turnover. Mm. And we had been led to believe that, you know, once they had been processed, once they'd been assessed by the court, once the social worker had made a report on them, that they would be moved on to either back to be reconciled with their families or that they would be put in foster care. But we discovered that this was their the children's lives, you know, this, this is where they were going to spend all of their childhood. And obviously there was a, a cohort of children there ranging from the very young to the very edge of adulthood. And 18-year-olds were given a letter one day saying, you have to be out by next week because you're 18, with absolutely no preparation for the outside world. So it was that that probably sparked the curiosity. Well, look, at, according to their own government, they're not supposed to be here for all of this time. Their placement here is supposed to be examined and interrogated by the courts. It obviously isn't. So we came to the conclusion that this is, this is basically a business. You know, this is, while it was rescuing some children at risk, uh, it certainly wasn't enhancing their life chances. So that was the beginning of the examination about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And this led us to the conclusion that if we could trace these children, trace their families, find out their story, get somebody on the ground to talk to the local authorities, place them in the context of, of their community and the, why they ended up in there. And as a result, we were able to reintegrate a considerable cohort of them. Not all of them, but a considerable amount of them are now back with their families, attending their local school, playing with their local, with their friends, being naughty and making mistakes and doing horrible things to each other like normal children do. But it's in a, a village and in a family context. I was struck by how open Jerry was about Maintain Hope's position changing over time. Just like life, this happens quite a lot in NGOs, but you don't very often hear it articulated. I asked Gemma about how Tear Fund Ireland's positions and perspectives on orphanages have evolved over time. We knew from our experience that it was, you know, it was a big problem in Cambodia. Cambodia saw a 75% increase in the number of orphanages in a very short period of time, um, which coincidentally coincided with Cambodia being a very high tourist destination point. 
But then the more we started to look at other countries, when we looked at Nepal, when we looked at countries in Africa, um, we started to see a pattern. And I think our journey, I suppose, has just been probably just going deeper into the issue itself. Um, and then also having a little bit more on the ground experience. The more we have been working with our partners on the ground, the more we have realised that, that actually, you know, it's not an isolated situation. We actually need to be looking at a much broader spectrum of preventing children from ending mm -hmm. up in institutional care in the first place, right the way to reintegrating them back home when we can, um, and in situations where that's not possible, because sometimes it isn't, um, what is the best method of alternative care for those children that can't be returned home? Um, so I think that's an ongoing journey for us. In wrapping up my conversation with Gemma and Jerry, I wanted to know what was next for the working group and what would they like to see happen once they've launched their research? When that paper is launched, that it will be an opportunity to start the conversation with politicians and with Irish Aid because if, unless it's coordinated and unless it has an impact, it will be dissipated because being passionate about something and talking to your local TD about it is wonderful, but it really won't achieve anything. So I think there has to be a coordinated persuasion of the government to listen to the concept of deinstitutionalisation and to tailor development aid then in the light of that. I think even a declaration like the Australians have done that volunteering in orphanages is undesirable. If we could persuade the Minister for Overseas Aid or even somebody um, in Cabinet to say, look, it hasn't worked in Ireland. We have a shameful history of institutionalisation in Ireland. We call the people who are in them, we call them survivors. How can we reasonably expect it to work in any other context when it has been a failure everywhere else? Yeah, and I think there is a, you know, there's a movement, there's a global movement at the moment towards deinstitutionalisation. Um, you know, as we've said earlier, Australia mm -hmm. has made its decree. Um, the UK government is equally following suit. Um, you know, there's different countries across Europe. The EU itself is also, you know, very um, engaged in this conversation. So there is definitely, I think, a moment in time now where people can really get behind this. Um, you know, we're going to see an election sooner or later in Ireland. Um, so what we would be saying to the general public is, look, we as COLOV, as Tear in Ireland, you know, we will give you as much information as we possibly can. Um, like, talk to your government ministers about it. When the TDs knock on your door and they say, what do you care about? You know, this is something that we want the Irish public to be saying, this is what we care about. We care about the 8 million children who are growing up in institutions when they don't have to and who are suffering long-term detrimental effects of that. We care about the children who have been trafficked into them and we care about the children who are being trafficked out of them. And as Ireland, with our history, you know, as you guys have both said, you know, that has to resonate with us and that has to resonate with our government as well. Thanks for listening today. You can follow Colove on Twitter and Facebook for our news and views and social justice and solidarity campaigns both locally and globally. And you can also check onto our website, colove.org, that's C-O-M-H-L-A-M-H.org, for all things around responsible volunteering overseas. <laughs>